People with diabetes are two to four times more likely to develop cardiovascular disease. How can you help your patients reduce the odds of getting cardiovascular disease? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special series focused on diabetes. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, Medical Director of the Heart Attack Prevention Center. Joining me today is Dr. Stanley Hazen, Head of the Section for Preventive Cardiology and Rehabilitation, Director for the Center for Cardiovascular Diagnostics and Prevention, and a Staff Physician in the Departments of Cell Biology and Cardiovascular Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. Dr. Hazen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. What do you think is going on in diabetics? Why is it that they get cardiovascular disease so often? The truth is that having diabetes is associated with cardiovascular disease, and it's clearly not just in glycemic control. It seems that the diabetes itself is linked to inflammation and oxidation and glycation that happens in the artery wall, and that these can have independent pro-atherosclerotic effects independent from just simply high blood sugar. We all say that if someone's a diabetic, then they automatically are put into this high-risk category and considered to have a, a CAD risk equivalent, and pretty much everybody needs to be on a statin. Would, would you agree with that? I would be very close. I hate ever using a, a complete black and white statement like that. And clearly, people who have contraindications to statin use and pregnancy, toxicity, you know, nursing. But other than that, we're extremely aggressive at putting every diabetic virtually that comes through our door, unless they're resistant to it, on a statin, just simply because the data is so strong that having diabetes, especially if it's diabetes that requires any kind of medical intervention, like even an oral agent, there's very strong numbers in studies with hundreds of thousands of patients that those patients are on increased risk, independent of their hemoglobin A1C even. And so we're very aggressive at putting those patients on a statin. I'm wondering if at the Cleveland Clinic, any of you guys order a newer test looking at haptoglobin 1 and 2 to kind of stratify your diabetics. We don't currently do that. I am quite familiar with, with that data. In fact, I've co-authored some of the studies on that. It is clear that based on the haptoglobin isoform that you do based on the sub-analysis of hope and care that you can stratify cardiovascular risk. The question is, if using that test would make someone say, okay, you have a low-risk haptoglobin, therefore you don't need a statin, I don't think the data is out there at this point to argue not to put the patients on the statin, to be honest. So we haven't been using that test. Instead, we've been just saying the downside of placing the patient on the statin is, you know, the risk is very small compared to the potential benefit. I would hate to be on the stand and have an attorney ask me, Dr. Caskell, you had a diabetic patient. Why weren't they on a statin? And they had an event. You know, in all fairness, I'll now move from the pro to the con side. We all have seen occasionally, not often, but patients who have diabetes and without being on a statin, their LDL level is below 100. Sometimes it's way down in the 70s. Right. That's a predicament. And if the patient is not adverse to being on a statin, and you get a difference of opinion even within the preventive cardiology staff here at the Cleveland Clinic, should the patients be on a statin or not. I tend to look at studies like the heart protection study, looking at patients, whether they have diabetes or not, even with an LDL below 100, if they're started on a statin, in that case it was simvastatin 40, they still showed the same 30% relative risk reduction 
compared to those who are off the statin. And I think that's the key. It's relative risk reduction. But what ends up happening is you're asking what is the person's absolute risk and is the benefit of being on a statin worth the cost? And at this stage, I think that it's very hard to identify amongst diabetics who have a low absolute risk. Based on all of the studies that are available, whether all of the diabetics and all the non-diabetics, you put them on a statin and you get about a 30% reduction in cardiovascular events, and including a 30% improvement in mortality. That's why we're looking for excuses to put patients on a statin. It's safe to say that the standard of care for all diabetics in 2007 is that most of them should be on a statin. Yes. The rare one that isn't is the one who's thin, has very few or no other risk factors, and their cholesterol level, their LDL is already at the 70 mark or less. And then it's really kind of hard to, if the patient says, you know, I really don't want to be on a statin, we're not really pushing it in that kind of individual. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Focus on Diabetes on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and today I'm talking with Dr. Stanley Hazen, head of the section for preventive cardiology and rehabilitation at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. We're talking about diabetes and heart disease. Dr. Hazen, I want to throw a patient out to you that I recently saw. He is a obese gentleman who was diabetic, and he cured his diabetes by having gastric bypass, and his lipids have come down to normal. And I looked at his carotid arteries. He has gorgeous arteries. There's no plaque. There's no thickening of his IMT, and he's got an LDL of 100. I told him that I'm taking him off everything. I took him off his high blood pressure medicine. I took him off his statin. He has no disease. How do you feel about that? While he may have cured his diabetes, and I I agree that the numbers with bariatric surgery are just amazing in terms of the impact on diabetes, and also the recent pair of studies that came out in the New England Journal just within the last month or two showing tremendous mortality benefits from bariatric surgery. But at the same time, I would look at the question of how long did he have diabetes, also what's his family history of cardiovascular disease, I look at what his HDL level is. If the only imaging that was done is in the carotids, while it is true that there is a correlation between atherosclerotic plaque and carotid and the coronary, that correlation is not perfect. It's, in fact, less than an R of 0.5. So not seeing plaque in a small segment of the common and the carotid gives some comfort, but the question is, should that person then not have to worry? It's hard to answer. It's hard to say. If if you had a patient who, let's say, was in the 60s and it had 20-year history of diabetes, just because it is true his diabetes might actually, quote, be cured, unquote, but if he had coronary plaque that had developed, there's no evidence that bariatric surgery and substantial rate reduction is going to promote regression. I would probably be keeping him on, a, on an aspirin a day and definitely monitoring for other risk factors. I want to talk about something that I don't think a lot of clinicians are familiar with. I was at a a vulnerable plaque summit, and they talked about in normal people and in diabetics that the cholesterol that's actually getting into the artery wall may be coming from not the inside of the artery, but the outside from the vasovasorum, and that it's the red blood cells that are leaking in and getting gobbled up by the macrophages, causing the the foam cells leading to the disease. And it's like, we've totally ignored that. You never hear about that. I'll be honest, I'm not familiar with erythrocyte as a source of cholesterol. I am familiar with the vasovasorum 
and the potential role of angiogenesis in atherosclerosis. And there is certainly animal model data to support that, that even inhibitors of angiogenesis uh, block atherosclerosis development in, in animal models. I'm not really certain about the link between a person's hemoglobin and hematocrit and, and atherosclerosis. If there's a correlation there, it's very, very weak. There is a slight correlation also with the, the red blood cell RDW or distribution width. Let's talk about one of your interests, myeloperoxidase. Have you found any differences in diabetic patients in their levels of MPO? versus non-diabetics? No, we've looked at that and actually it was recently reported in the Journal of American College of Cardiology, the examination of use of MPO in a community-based risk screen. This was based on the EPIC Norfolk trial, over 25,000 subjects, and then identified a, a case control cohort out of that for those who went on and developed coronary artery disease or had a myocardial infarction or died versus twice the number of age and gender matched controls. And in that analysis, while MPO levels did independently, prospectively predict cardiovascular risks, and it was higher in patients who are older, it was not higher in patients who were diabetic compared to non-diabetic. I don't know that there's a mechanistic link between diabetes and myeloperoxidase at the present time. And is there any sort of relationship or correlation between HDL becoming more pro-inflammatory in the milieu of someone who's got uh, uncontrolled diabetes? If you're asking is dysfunctional HDL, if you will, increased in diabetics disproportionately to non-diabetic, the short answer is we don't know the answer yet. We don't have yet the tools to actually make large number analyses. Currently, our measurements of dysfunctional HDL are modified APOA1 or HDL that is pro-inflammatory and not atheroprotective is done by proteomics, by mass spectrometry. So the studies that our group and others have done that show that this is true are limited to literally like 100 patients apiece at a time. And what we need is a high-throughput test, but that's still on the event horizon, about a year away, it looks like. Can we shift gears a little bit and talk about HDL a little more? I know that's one of your areas of interest. And talk maybe perhaps about what's coming down the road in terms of HDL memetics, which may be a totally foreign concept to most of our listeners. Sure. So first, in terms of HDL memetics, there have been many studies in animals, and actually now some in humans even, that if you raise or if you give either APOA1, that's the major protein of HDL, or pieces of APOA1, like peptides, that these can promote reverse cholesterol transport and that this actually promotes plaque regression in animal models. And in humans, this has been done by Steve Nissen and colleagues from my institution at the Cleveland Clinic. They looked at APOA1 Milano and gave five single intravenous infusions of this APOA1, and it promoted greater degree of plaque regression than any of the other statin studies, you know, for long periods of time have ever promoted. So there are quite a few pharmaceutical companies that are very focused on trying to promote plaque regression by reverse cholesterol transport enhancers. And these tend to be either full-length APOA1, but that kind of requires an intravenous or parenteral type of or subcutaneous injection or peptides, and there are also a whole families of different amphipathic peptides that will promote reverse cholesterol transport, and actually one of them, there's a company called Brunswick who Novartis is licensed, have these D-amino acid-containing peptides, so they're not 
they're readily absorbed, and, and the data looks very strong. And that administration of these D peptide, D amino acid peptide, can actually promote plaque regression and promote anti-inflammatory effects in animal models. And now it just remains to be seen if this will translate into human studies. But I think the next few years is going to be revolutionary in the treatment of atherosclerosis. So that product you were talking about, would that be orally absorbed? Yes, that would be like an orally absorbed short peptide, like shorter than, you know, 20, 22 amino acids in length. So the future of lipidology is bright and ever-changing. Dr. Stanley Hazen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.